When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, of Jesus of Nazareth they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, teach us now, guide us this evening for Christ's sake. Teach us something new. We pray this in his name. Amen. My text today is from John 18, verse 11 in the NIV, and it's four simple words. Uh, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Put your sword away. If you're interested, it's actually six words in the original language. King, the King James Version follows the Greek. Put thy sword into thy sheath. Sheath your sword, Peter. Put the sword down, put it away. This command of Jesus was said in a garden, unnamed in John. On the eve of Christ's death, his disciples are there for the moment, they'll run. And guards have come to arrest him, potentially lots of them. Peter, we find out, finds out, he takes a swing at Malchus's ear. That's, his, that's the, the high priest's servant's name. His right ear, in fact, is famously, famously lobbed off. And Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has for me? So it turns out Peter's sword is not the path the kingdom of God. Rather, the Father's cup is. Now, this is the parish of Churchill, so I, of course, have a sword. Uh, the Garrison Church has a sword. I also have a cup. There are plenty of these around St. Philip's too. For Jesus, then, it's not the sword, 
but rather the cup. And we'll compare these two modes of being and see what difference it makes to our lives and to the next 2,000, the most recent 2,000 years of history. And I got a Tom Holland quote uh, you'll see in a moment. So tonight we begin our Lent series. It's late, of course. Uh, we have Rivendell to thank for that, which was great. But we're back onto the hands of God, our theme for 2024. Indeed, the kingly hand of God in the account of the crucifixion and resurrection of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, because those hands will be pierced. It's the only path, not the sword, the cup. The psalmist says, for you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. Psalmist couldn't know about the hands of Jesus Christ. The series follows the last chapters of John. We follow Jesus on his way from the upper room, that's the context of our text today, to the cross on Good Friday, and then we'll pivot as Jesus does to the resurrection for a couple of weeks, the last few chapters of John. You can see the series on the piece of paper you were handed when you walked in. What we'll see as we follow Jesus on the way to the cross is that he had what I'm calling cruciform strength. Cruci comes from the Latin word crux or cross. Cruciform means in the form or the shape of a cross. It means cross-formed strength. And these are two words that sum up the life of Jesus. And it's crucial. There's a profound strength in Jesus, we'll see, a strength that chooses the cross or the cup rather than the sword. It's a strength that chooses to be bulldozed rather than to bulldoze if you have a choice. And it's a strength that you and I can find if we follow him, we can find it in him in the power of the spirit. But make no mistake, it is a victory. It's not doormat behavior. Jesus, we find out, is not on the right side of history, rather, he is the right side of history. Three points today, if you're following the outline. We're going to talk about the incident primarily with Peter from John's Gospel. Then we'll make an observation from Matthew and a challenge from Luke's account of the same incident. So firstly, the incident involves Jesus saying to Peter, put your sword away. This incident, this lunge of the sword is in all four Gospels. The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Luke, they look through one eye, and John. They each have differences that I believe lend weight to the credibility of this story. That's important. If you want to lie, make all the stories look the same. They've got differences. By the way, you can imagine Peter later in life as the story gets told over and over again in the oral tradition. He's like, okay, here we go again. Like, I know, I missed the mark more than, one, more than one way. All four gospels go straight from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane in the Mount of Olives. It's still a real place. Put your hand up if you've been there. Wow. It's a garden, apparently. I've not been there. You could enter it. You'll see that in the text today. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus approves of two swords being brought with them, which when you see the armed guard, you realize is probably a bit of a joke. 
John, and I'm going to work my way verse by verse, so you might as well have the Bible open in front of you. In verse 1, when Jesus had finished praying, he left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, uh, and he and his disciples entered. He went, they went into it. John doesn't name the garden, but the synoptics do. It's Gethsemane. Tom Wright contends that John doesn't name the garden because he's creating the sense of a new beginning. In the beginning was the word. What we have here is a new garden with a second Adam in a second garden undoing the effects of the first Adam in the first garden. It's restoration. It's redemption. In every account, temple guards arrive. Only John alludes to Roman soldiers Maybe. Otherwise, it's a Jewish internal affair with the religious police. They'll involve Rome later. And they're led by Judas, you'll see in verse 2. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Big mistake. A big mistake if you're trying to run and hide. Now, I, I wouldn't have gone to the place I always go to. I would have chosen something a little bit more hidden. Jesus does not hide his location. He goes to the place where they often met with the disciples. And so Judas, I, what's Judas thinking? He'll go to the place he always goes to. I know him, but the 30 pieces of silver somehow seemed worth it. He, liked it. he had his hand in the money. We know that from John 12. Now, Jesus knew everything that was going to happen. He knew that Judas would betray him. We know that from chapter 13, where Jesus tells Judas, what you're about to do, do it quickly. I need this over with. And yet Jesus, as I said, goes to the place he always goes to, which if you're trying to save your life, is a big mistake. He goes to the place he always goes to. It reminds me of Daniel heading to his window. And Jesus doesn't run. Remember, it's cruciform strength. He stays and stands his ground against the bully, but he does so without the sword. Verse 3, Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers, probably Roman, probably lots of them, and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were, we're told, carrying torches and lanterns and, we're told, weapons. It's Matthew and Mark that tell us what the weapons were. Swords and clubs. I'm not sure what they were intending to do with them all. Were they expecting to find these fishermen? You know, <laughs> Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that Jesus then betrayed, Judas rather, betrayed Jesus with a kiss, with a kiss. So powerful and poignant. Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. In Matthew, Jesus says to Judas, do what you came for, friend. Luke, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Really? That really was mine, intended for emphasis or emphasis. Mark simply says, the men seized Jesus and arrested him. Now remember, it's cruciform strength. He doesn't hide his identity. Verse four, Jesus, knowing all that was gonna to happen to him, 
went out of the garden and asked, who is it that you want? They replied, Jesus, the Jesus from Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am he. That's important to understand in the Greek, it's ego, I am, am, Amy, ego, Amy, I am. Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, I am, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, what are you supposed to do with this? A huge detachment of soldiers falling to the ground. Well, I think the reader is being told something that this is the great I am or Yahweh from Exodus. This is God himself, especially true in John's gospel. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth and the life. And so they fall down as people do when they meet Yahweh as if to emphasize the point in verse seven. Again, he asked them, who is it that you want? They repeat Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you, I am. Tom Wright says, this is the simple, clear, world-changing statement. The vulnerable man standing before you in the garden, who's not vulnerable, by the way, he has, well, he is, but he has cruciform strength. This one glimpsed in the flickering torchlight is the one who from all eternity was equal with the Father. He is the I am, the bread of life, the light of the world, the resurrection of the life, the way, the truth, and the life. Something of this is the only reasonable explanation why in this version, the arresting party stumble back and fall to the ground. Jesus doesn't hide behind others. This is cruciform strength. He protects his friends in fulfillment of prophecy. Verse eight, if you're looking for me, if it's, if it's I am that you want, then let these men go. In the synoptics, they run and desert Jesus but in John, he asks that they be let go. Verse nine, this happened so that the words he had spoken will be fulfilled. I've not lost one of those you gave me, which is from the farewell discourse and indeed chapter 10. It's a lovely moment of grace in Christ's hour of need. In my hour of need, I get all nervous and anxious and I get controlly and worried and try to fix things. This is, this is grace. This is cruciform strength. Then, here it is. Peter steps up to the plate. It's at this point that the sword is unsheathed. As I said, we know from Luke, two swords were brought. One of them obviously belongs to Peter. And so the situation is volatile. There's only two swords left with perhaps hundreds of clubs and swords. But you know, you've seen the movie scene with the mafia boss surrounding the good guy. And the one guy in the middle who's, you know, doomed, pulls out a gun, and they all pull out a gun. Right? The whole situation's volatile. Verse 10, Simon Peter, who had a sword, one of two, he drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. John alone provides the name of the injured man for whom Jesus provides first aid, and last aid, we'll come to that. I love how Matthew and Mark say that Peter cut off his ear and John and Luke say it was his right ear. Did impetuous Peter miss the mark? I mean, he's like that sort of guy. I got your back, Jesus. You won't die. 
get behind me Satan. Did he miss the mark? Trying to get, hit a heart, got near, you know, aim for the moon, hit the back fence. Is that what happened? Or was it intentional, as some have suggested, Dr. George Athos at Moore College suggests in his recent book that the cutting off of the right here mirrors an event in the intertestimonial period. I don't think, well, I can't say for certain. What we do know is that Jesus said, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And so the incident introduces for the reader a comparison, sword or cup, two modes of doing life. Sword is one way, cup another. Sword is Peter's, the cup belongs to the father, my father's cup. The sword is wielded at others, the cup is drunk by the person who holds it, to its dregs. The sword is promoting the kingdom of God with violence. The cup is drinking in the cup of suffering, drinking in all the violence and the sickness and the sin. And we're going to find out the wrath of God with it. The sword is about control. The cup is about faith, trusting the Father. The sword kills. The cup gives life. The sword, it turns out, is about weakness. Weakness. The cup is about cruciform strength. And this idea of the cup comes from the scriptures. In Isaiah 51, verse 17, God tells the ancient people of Israel that they have drunk from the cup during the exile for their sins. They've drunk it to its dregs. Awake, rise up, Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his just settled wrath against sin, you who have drained it to its dregs, the goblet that makes people stagger. That's what the exile is. But five verses on, famously in Isaiah, he tells them that another will drink the cup. He means, by the way, the enemies of God, the Babylonian army. He says, this is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I have taken the cup from your hand, the cup that made you stagger, from that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink it again. I'll give it to your enemies. When Jesus says that he has to drink the cup, he's saying that he will drink in the wrath of God. He will take the sin and subsequent wrath, be treated as an enemy of the people of God. That's what's happening. He will take the suffering of the ages, the sorrows, the sickness. They, he carried up the hill. We sung that. Our first song, he'll take the exile and the loneliness attached to it and all the sin that came with it. He'll drink in the sin. He'll shed his blood. As the old prayer book says, his, by his precious blood shedding, he has obtained. In telling people, Peter to put down the sword, he is at the same time saying, instead of this, that. And then John's gospel sort of drops it there. The reader is left to make connections, to understand. The reader's left with like, do I have an open mind, a heart leaning in towards God? Only Luke recalls how Jesus touched the man's ear and he was healed. But here it is, first lesson. Put down your sword, Peter. The victory will come not by the sword, 
it will come via one cup. It's not yours to drink. You're not the hero of the story. That's important to say as we take bread and wine in a few moments' time. Secondly, then, I move away from John and make Christ's observation. The incident in John is left as an incident alone. There's no um, clear moral from the story. But Matthew, I think, and Luke provide a moral for the story that really changes the next 2,000 years of history and really has shaped Western societies. Got that quote from Tom Holland coming. The observation is that those who draw the sword, they die by the sword. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. It's in Matthew's Gospel, and here it is. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Peter, you want to draw your sword? You'll end up dying in some Galilean uprising against the Romans. You know, it'll be very... What's that battle? The one they all know about? Masada. It'll be very Masada if you want to pick up a sword. I'm saying, put your sword down. Let's not go with Masada. Let's try another path. Those who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Now you've got your two swords. They've got maybe hundreds of swords and clubs. But those hundreds of swords and clubs with people falling down, right? I could have just called on my father and 12 legions of angels have been brought down and saved me. A sort of mirror of what will happen in the following week when the cynics will say to him, you can't be the Messiah. If you were, you'd save yourself and come down. Ironically, I think Matthew here in verse 53 is echoing the temptation in the wilderness, rounding off that story. But Jesus is saying to Peter, I didn't need your sword, I don't need your sword, and I won't need your sword. If I wanted to stop these guards with their swords and clubs, I could have called on God to open a can on these people, but I'm not calling on God to open a can on these people. I'm going to go willingly with them. The kingdom of God doesn't come via control, not by the flesh, not by human means, a mode of getting in and above people, of dominating them, to win and to subjugate. In fact, those who live that way, says Jesus, die that way. It's something we all know. I've been listening to some podcasts on Stalin's Soviet Empire because, you know, I like cheery podcasts. And Stalin's Soviet Empire is full of murderous characters. Um, and a lot of them, not Stalin, who dies of a... I, I mean, I'm so glad there's a judgment beyond death because, you know, he has a heart attack and, well, a slow death, but that's all he has. But lots of the murderous people under him, they were subsequently killed by their successors, dragged out into courts. And what's fascinating about most of the, a lot of the, almost all these stories is that these men who had ordered and personally killed tens of thousands of people routinely wept and begged for their lives as if this wasn't the path of someone who lives by the sword. 
I'm not making the connection to Australian politics when I say that I did watch ABC's nemesis about the Liberal Party reign. But it's, I think it's fair to say that those who live by politics die by politics. Even the good guys, the good women who you know, get into political life, when they get ousted, they'll say those who live by politics die by politics. I think John Howard would say that, lost his seat, rolled the dice, this is what happens. Even in the church, I listened to, many years ago, a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which I'm pretty sure Roger would have listened to and maybe a few others, about a church that uh, lived by social media, I think probably is fair to say. Uh, everything's complicated, but, you know, they made the point that those who live by social media die by social media. Have a think about its alternative. Those who live by the cross, is that you? Even with your idol of comfort. Thank you, Roger Bray. How does it work with an idol of comfort? Thank you, Roger, for keeping me up tonight. <laughs> Roger and I texted this afternoon. He's presiding over the Lord's Supper. Those who live by the cross, we die by the cross. And yet, resurrection, hope. Jesus lives by the cross and dies by the cross he doesn't live by the sword, but by the cup. By the way, contra legitimate forms of Islam, legitimate readings of the Quran. There is no record of reading Jesus and interpreting him as living by the sword. Doesn't exist. And any Christian who've lived by the sword, I think crusades or even the abuse, the more recent abuse of, of children, it's a form of living by the sword. They're not living with Christ's song sheet. They're not living the way Christ said to live. There's no reading of Jesus that allows for the crusades or the abuse of children. There is no pre or post Mecca for Jesus. There's, there's two Muhammads in Islam. Jesus wins, not by means of armies, not by means of jihad, not by means of control of government, but by the cross with cruciform strength. He served others, caring, healing, confronting, challenging, persuading, and saving lives. And it is strength. It's the strongest strength. It's by the way why a child can have it, not just an army officer who's been trained as a weapon doesn't matter how strong you are or weak you are, whether you're male or female, old or young, you can have this strength because it's internal. Jesus Christ lived a cruciform life and it results in victory. This is important. This is why you must have a resurrection. You must have the victory of the Son of God and he will win. His victory is assured. He is the right side of history. The cup Jesus drinks is not the cup of human politics, of Jerusalem beating Rome, of one religion defeating another, or one way of thinking in a, winning over another in some culture war. Those who live by the culture war will die by the culture war. I'm not saying this, you can't fight and argue, but you know, the cup here is the wrath of God. And this can only be drunk by one man and only by his death on the cross and this is the only way that God brings us victory in him. Remember that when you come to the table in a moment's time. Now all of this,
put your sword away. It, it all revolutionizes the Old Testament because there's lots of blood and swords in the Old Testament. And we find out from Jeremiah 29, thank you, Bromman, for leading us this at Rivendell. Unarmed resistance is there in the exile, even as they hope for a defeat of Babylon. But it's also leaned into in the Psalms, that Psalm we read a moment ago. We have heard it with our ears, O God. Our ancestors told us what you did in their days, in days long ago, with your hand, you drove out the nations, planted our ancestors, you crushed the peoples and made our ancestors flourish. But leaning into a new mode, it was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. Indeed, it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you love them, the Lord my God, you are my king. It's God who performs the victory the way he wants to. And if he says the victory comes via the cup, then you get to submit. This is why we'll sing in just a moment's time, God, be my vision, but also be my breastplate, be my sword for the fight, be thou my whole armor, and be thou my true might. It's a shift they had to make, that the disciples did make, for they all died. Almost all of them, not John. Most of them were crucified. Peter, upside down. They made it because there is no kingdom violence in the New Testament, and we have to make the shift too. So third and finally, the challenge. No more of this, it's in Luke. When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? It's Luke that tells them they have two swords. Luke brings the whole followers into Peter's passion. But one of them, Peter, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear, but Jesus answered, no more of this. And I say to you, in the power of the Spirit, in the name of Christ, no more of this, no more control, no more sword, no more coercion. For what it's worth, I do not believe that this is a call to pacifism, full stop, this is not saying that a government can't have an army. Governments bear the sword for a reason, Romans. Peter says the same thing. I believe, for example, that the D-Day invasion was morally right. There's such a thing as just war. But it does mean that for a follower of Jesus, the kingdom of God is spread not by hate or the sword or by armies, but rather by love and persuasion. It's cruciform strength by which we are on mission. And with such cruciform strength, God saves. It's right there in John, the detachment of soldiers, verse 12, arrested Jesus, brought him to Annas, who's the father of the Lord Caiaphas, who is the one, verse 14, who advised the Jewish leaders that it will be good if one man died for the people. That's chapter 11. If we kill Jesus, we get to save the nation. If we kill Jesus, we might live. Caiaphas gets the cross accidentally. He stumbles across it. The clock is right twice a day. One man did die, Jesus Christ, for the people. He drank the cup for you and for me. How does this change the world? Tom Holland, not a Christian, historian, podcaster, touches on why it matters. He says the audacity of it, the audacity of finding in a twisted and defeated corpse the glory of the creator of the universe, this is the hour of his glory, it's the irony that serves to explain 
more surely than anything else, the sheer strangeness of Christianity and of the civilization to which it gave birth. Tom Holland then points out that those secularists today that critique Christianity for its violence, the Crusades and the like, don't then ask the obvious next question, which is, where did I get the view that violence was a problem in the first place against a weakened people? Where did I get the view that, that, that it's right to be close to the downtrodden or why God is close to the downtrodden? Tom Holland argues it's because we've all drunk of 2,000 years of this story. Such questions don't come from any other source, certainly not the Greco-Roman world. It is, he writes, bred of the fact that our society emerges from a culture that has at its heart someone who said, put up your sword to his followers and willingly went to his death with cruciform strength. So my friends, no more of this, as Luke says. Put away your sword, no controls, no coercion, just love, persuasion, challenge. Always give a reason for the hope you have. And a reason, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And as I ask the musicians to come forward, I'm gonna pray a prayer. I'll start in Psalm 44 and finish with um, Be Thou My Vision, which we'll sing. Let's pray. Father, I put no trust in my bow, my controls, my anger, my coercion, my, my anxious response to certain things, my sword does not bring me victory, but you give us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ over the enemy, death, sin, Satan himself. In you, my God, we make our boast all day long and we praise your name forever. We say to you, be thou my vision, be thou my breastplate, my sword for the fight, be thou my armor and be thou my might.